So I would say that everybody here today is probably aware that Nashville is growing at a very rapid pace. Uh, just over, they say, over 100 people uh, move here every single day. And so for our church, this gives us new opportunities for ministry and to welcome new people into our church. If you're new to Nashville and you're here, we're glad that you're here. Welcome and hospitality really matters. Uh, but I recently heard a prediction that Nashville is going to be adding 235,000 jobs over the next five years. Let me say that again. 235,000 jobs over the next five years with companies like Oracle and Alliance Bernstein and Amazon and, and many others. Um, in Green Hills, houses are being torn down and they are building two, sometimes three in their place. There is talk now on the state level about building a new football stadium for the Tennessee Titans because apparently it will cost 1.2 or 1.3 billion dollars to renovate the one that we have. The east bank of the Cumberland River will continue to be developed in the coming years, making the Cumberland a focal point of downtown. On top of all this, the suburbs are sprawling. Places like Franklin and Smyrna and Murfreesboro and Columbia and Mount Juliet uh, continue to have people moving to them from all over the country. So with this rapid growth in our city, there comes challenges like picking up the trash, uh, traffic issues, crime, homelessness, affordable housing, and, and, and certain other things. And with the growth, we have seen housing prices absolutely soar. In 2021, Davidson County real estate appreciated roughly 21%. It's projected in 22 to appreciate another 20 or 21%. That is absolutely astounding. Now, when you're living in the middle of all this, it's hard to appreciate how rapidly this city is growing and changing until you try to go buy a house or you try to drive downtown for a meeting. Nashville is a hot city. People are moving here from the East Coast, from the West Coast, from the North and the South, and from many other places. And a lot of the folks that are moving here have a lot of money. Uh, some don't think twice about paying well over a million dollars for a teardown so they can build a new home. I wanna ask you this morning, how do you feel about all of this growth? How do you feel about the things that are happening to our hometown, Nashville, Tennessee. Are you excited? Are you afraid? Uh, I know some people who have recently left Nashville because they say that they don't recognize it uh, anymore. Uh, I know others whose children have graduated from college and they wanna move back to Nashville, but they can't afford to buy a house anywhere near where they grew up. And so they're choosing to go live somewhere else and they are frustrated and they are disappointed. All of these are stories that many of you have heard as well. During Lent, we've been looking at the parables of Jesus, primarily in Matthew's gospel. And this was one of Jesus's primary teaching methods. It's what he used, it's what he did, and there's so many of them. But today we're gonna to talk about what is one of the most complicated relationships that we have in our lives, and that is our relationship with money, and things. Jesus talked about this subject all the time. I've told you before, not because he was trying to raise money, 
but because he knew how challenging and complicated this topic would always be for us as human beings and also for us as his followers. Matthew tells us about a rich young man who comes up to Jesus and says, teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds to him with a question. Why do you call me good? There's only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And the man says, well, well, which ones? And Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm sure uh, Reverend Justin has talked about the class, the 10 commandments, the greatest commandment. This is what Jesus tells this man. Well, the man responds to him and he says, well, I have kept all these commandments. What still do I lack? And Jesus says, if you wish to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad and grieving because he had many possessions. So the disciples are witnessing this exchange. And like so many other times, they are confused. They are upset. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so they say, well, well then who can be saved, Jesus? And what does he say? He says, well, for mortals, it is impossible. But for God, all things are possible. You know, if we're honest, we really don't like this text. It makes us uncomfortable. Jesus, are you saying that I have to sell everything that I own and give the money to the poor to inherit eternal life? I don't see anybody else doing that. In fact, I see them doing the opposite. What are you talking about here, Jesus? I, I've got a family. I've got bills to pay. I've got tuition and college to save for. Have you seen the price of gas? Have you seen the price of groceries? Have you seen how much it costs to buy a house in Nashville, Tennessee right now? What do you want me to do here, Jesus? Megan and I went this past Tuesday to pick up Montgomery's insulin. She's type one diabetic and went to Walgreens, picked it up. After the insurance had paid over $2,000, we haven't met our deductible. For three months of insulin, we paid $1,150. We can afford it. There's some other folks who can't pay for that. This is one of those passages in scripture that kind of makes us squirm. And you know what? I think that's intentional. It should make us a little bit uncomfortable. Jesus comforted the afflicted, but he always afflicted the comfortable. Money is one of those universal topics that people don't like to talk about. Why? Because we don't think it's anybody else's business what we do with our money. It's personal, it's private, but unfortunately Jesus doesn't feel this way. He, he talks about it and he talks about it a lot. I'll leave you with a few thoughts this morning, but I want you to wrestle with this encounter that Jesus has with the rich young man. I've wrestled with it this past week. My first thought is this. I think there's something missing in this text. After the rich young man says, I've kept all these commandments, what still do I lack? 
And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give your money to the poor. There must have been a response or look on his face that is not described in this text. It was probably something like, you've got to be kidding me. And so I think it occurred to Jesus that even though this guy was keeping the commandments, the law, even though this guy was following the law, he was absolutely defined by being rich and having a lot of stuff. That was his identity. And guess what? Our world tells us that that's good. It's good to be rich. It gives you security. It's good to have lots of stuff. Better than not having any stuff. That's what our world says. Not only that, but we hear over and over again that we deserve it in commercials. But I think Jesus is basically saying here to this man, clearly money defines you. And until you give up what you have, you're never going to get it. And you know what? I think he might say the same thing to some of us. As long as we keep finding our happiness and our security in money and possessions and success, then we will have a very hard time understanding what the kingdom of God is all about. It's not about money. It's not about stuff. It's about love and compassion and forgiveness and generosity. It's about helping others and looking out for the least of these. It's about loving your family and your friends and and building habitat houses like a group is doing again this morning and tutoring at Fall Hamilton and hosting Room in the Inn and going to Guatemala. That's what the kingdom of God is about. And if you can use your money to make those things happen, then you get it. Second thought this morning, I think Jesus is making the clear point here that without question, money is the greatest idol that we have in our culture. It's true today. It was true back in first century Palestine. For so many people, it is their God. It defines them. It's their motivation for everything that they do. It's what they think about all day long. Tim Keller, Presbyterian minister, wrote a great book years ago called Counterfeit Gods. I'd highly recommend it. But in the book, Keller identifies and discusses the various idols that human beings always turn to, including money, success, politics, etc. But this is what Keller says about money. He says, money is one of the most common counterfeit gods that there is. When it takes hold of your hearts, it, it blinds you to what is happening. It controls you through your anxieties and lusts, and it brings you to put it ahead of all other things. Now, the reason that money becomes an idol is because we live in a culture of social comparison, largely driven by social media. And social comparison should be defined as the number one thief of joy in life. Why? Because we don't ever compare ourselves to people who have less. We always compare ourselves to people who have more, a lot more. And then we wonder why we can't have more. All the people coming to Nashville and buying up lots and houses, all the money coming into our town, doesn't seem fair. Constant social comparison robs us of joy in life because we're never satisfied or thankful for what we do have. 
Restlessness and discontentedness is one of the cancers of our culture. And the only cure for it is gratitude. Keller says, when people visit here from other parts of the globe, they are staggered to see the levels of materialistic comfort that the majority of Americans have come to view as a necessity. As long as people keep ratcheting up their lifestyles with their incomes, there will never be an end in sight because there's always something bigger and better and fancier to buy and money quickly becomes an idol. But it's not the only idol. Lastly this morning, my third thought for you. Jesus' exchange with the rich young man should force us to ask one question, I think. What is it that defines my life? What is it that defines your life? Is it money, stuff, success, and power? Or is it faith, compassion, family, and friendship? This is a choice that we all get to make. The one thing about money is that for better or worse, it communicates what our priorities are in life. The way you spend your time and your money will tell you what matters most to you. So if you look at your bank statement or your calendar, that'll tell you what's most important to you. And if you're not satisfied with the way your priorities are stacking up, then make some changes. You know, some of us live our lives like we're going to be here forever. And we'll get to the important things later down the road. That's not a good mindset. Get to the important things now. I bet if you ask these disciples class mentors, they would tell you that doing this process is one of the most meaningful things in their life right now. I would bet that. There's no assurance that we're gonna be here forever or even a year from now. I'll give you another book recommendation this morning, not that you asked, but it's a book that I'm reading right now by Arthur Brooks and it's called From Strength to Strength. And he's actually gonna be in Nashville tomorrow night uh, speaking over at NBA. Um, this is a great book. The first half of life, Brooks says, seems to be focused on education, career, establishment, finding a spouse, starting a family, earning a living. We work hard, we sacrifice, we combat stress, and ambition often rules the day. But at some point, hopefully, at some point, all of us get to a place where we start to ask the question, what is it that really matters in life? What's it all about? Am I actually enjoying the journey along the way? And so in this book, Brooks says that he was trying to glean the wisdom and experience from people who have seen a lot, who've already made stupid mistakes and can teach the younger folks how to avoid those same mistakes. Wise people are able to learn from the mistakes and the experiences of others. Professional and physical decline, as well as other life disappointments, are inevitable for all of us as human beings. But we can do certain things to intentionally achieve a healthier and a happier existence. Many things are out of our control, like where we were born, the social class of our parents, having a happy childhood, or our genetic makeup, avoiding clinical depression, but Brooks identifies seven predictors that are in our control. What are they? 
First, he says, don't smoke or at least try to quit early. Second, he says, use alcohol in moderation and if it causes you serious problems and just stop. Third, he says, maintain a healthy body weight by eating the right kind of food and portions. Really struggle with that one. Fourth, he says, remain physically active with walking being the most uh, logical exercise over time. Fifth, he says, learn to confront problems directly and honestly without avoiding them and just kicking the can down the road. Sixth, he says, become a lifelong learner. Never lose your passion for asking questions and stimulating your mind. And then lastly, seventh, he says, maintain a stable set of lifelong relationships. And it's this final recommendation that seems to have the greatest impact on our lives. After a multi-decade study at Harvard of graduates on happiness, some of you have heard of this before, psychiatry professor Robert Waldinger says this. He says, the lessons aren't about wealth or fame or working harder, period. The people who are the most satisfied in their relationships at age 50 were the healthiest at age 80. Women seem to be much better at cultivating friendships outside of their marriage than men. Uh, He says men have a lot of deal friends, but not as many real friends. Healthy marriages that last over the long haul are grounded in friendship and mutual respect, avoiding contempt and resentment. And many people turn to religion and spirituality in the second half of life to find deeper meaning. Because I believe Jesus is always getting us to ask that question, what defines you? What are you all about? In his letter to Timothy, one of the pastoral epistles, Paul writes it this way, as for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. Alex and Polly Ryerson chose that verse for our stewardship campaign this year. It's a powerful passage. We get to choose what matters in life. We get to choose what we're going to focus on and invest in and spend our time and our money doing. And if we don't make certain things a priority, then the world will set our priorities and they will be misguided. So what defines you? What would Jesus say to you if he had an encounter like he did with this man in Matthew's gospel? Amen.